I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the Western Hunting Hub podcast. And if you end up going to Colorado this year to do some hunting and you decide to pick up a 6.5 Creedmoor, make sure you are not using any match grade ammo that's one thing that i keep picking up on uh, various people that are using and it's dumb those bullets don't break up they don't do or the bullets break up they don't hold together and create any kind of damage i know that's a random little piece of information but seen it multiple times and it's just not a smart thing to do not a fan of the 6.5 caliber so get after me for whatever reason there but i'm not into flavors of the month and various uh, trendy things. I'm going to stick with those calibers that have been around for a long, long time and have proven proven to be working. So anyway, this episode is with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And if you are hunting in Colorado, this is an episode you need to listen to. April 4th, I believe, is the deadline for the big game draw. And it has some really good information to help you understand the new allocation process as a non-resident and just understand what what uh, your odds are uh, for different things so time to do some homework we're getting close to that draw date uh, and i'm kind of crunching numbers right now trying to figure this out but i learned a few things from this episode and was happy to have on two guests from colorado parks and wildlife so thanks and enjoy Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the Western Hunting Hub podcast, and I have on Danielle and Joey from the Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, introduce yourself real quick. Uh, let's go with uh, Danielle first. Um, I was going to say, your, I didn't even ask clarify, clarification on how to pronounce your last name. I want to say Eisenhart. How did I do? That's correct. Thank Perfect. you, <laughs> Yeah, so if you could introduce yourself, say what you do for CPW, uh, and then also just why you enjoy working for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Sure. So yes, Danielle Eisenhart. I am the licensed reservation and customer operations section manager for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. I know that's a mouthful, um, but basically I manage our section that is in charge of our limited license draws, our call center, our camping and hunting reservations, the license suspensions, and all of our agents that sell 
um, our park passes and licenses across the state. So basically, if you interact with CPW, you likely interact with something that I'm responsible for. And I think that's one of the reasons I love working for CPW and then in my current role is just that I get to hopefully make everyone's interactions with our agency better. And also the, the revenue that comes in through all those processes helps fund our wildlife management and other things for our agency. So definitely feel like my job is impactful. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and then the second part, what do you enjoy the most about working for CPW? I think it is just that I know that my work um, is impactful and is a service to our customers. So oh, sure. that I get to play a role in, you know, um, policy and impacting some of those important customer face-to-face -face interactions. And then ever since I was a little girl, I always wanted to work with wildlife. So I'm not really working with wildlife directly anymore. Um, but I know that my, my work still helps benefit the resource. Yeah. Cause as I have a four year old and he's so addicted to wildlife and my one year old is just so addicted to taxidermy, just looks at it, likes it like a lot of kids. And you think, Man, they all want to probably grow up and work with animals. How many kids do you hear that hear that in elementary school? I want to work with animals. I want to work with animals. But uh, adults probably don't always understand exactly what you do from your title. So a little kid being able to comprehend, oh, there's other things you can do besides being a vet or a biologist. <laughs> there's there's multiple things. So very very interesting. I'm what gonna be curious to see where my my kids go with their desire for for animals you never know but very cool my daughter's the same way she's six and she wants to save endangered animals that's her goal right now in life <laughs> well there you go that's great and uh, mr joy livingston can you introduce yourself with the same questions yeah, so um, I'm Joey Livingston. I'm a statewide public information officer uh, with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. I uh, started with CPW back in um, 2016 um, at a state park doing boat inspections. Um, and then I worked at the Southeast Region um, office in Colorado Springs, um, one of our wildlife offices here in Colorado, and spent about five years uh, working directly with the public, um, helping them apply for the draw, answering hunting regulations questions, fishing regulations questions, and uh, recently was uh, promoted to statewide public information officer. And, um, you know, second part of that question, you know, I think um, what I really enjoy is is having that interaction with people and, um, you know, all that time I spent, you know, helping people understand our hunting regulations and, and the process. Um, I just really liked you know, seeing kind of um, the gears turn in people's head as you, you know, made them understand, um, you know, this, you know, hunting regulations in Colorado can be a bit complicated, um, but there's usually a method to the madness and, uh, you know, just being able to, you know, communicate that and see people, um, you know, gain that understanding um, has been, you know, very rewarding for me. Yeah, I uh, enjoy digging into multiple states just to see uh, and, and apply, obviously, to hunt and, and recreate in those different states. But uh, living in Colorado forced me to figure it out. And I would say learning a little bit more about Wyoming and Montana, uh, I had this discussion yesterday with a hunting buddy that, man, Montana's confusing, Wyoming's not too bad. Colorado is not not too horrible. Once you dive into it, you can really understand it. I, I think everything's pretty comprehensive in the handbook. Um, 
and and not like some states where it's it's lawyer speak in the in the regulation piece. I think it's pretty doable in understanding what you can and cannot do and what opportunities are available uh, if you just put in that time. So thanks thanks again for setting this interview up and uh, let's dive into some of this stuff. It's application season right now uh, across many much of the West and the whole U.S. and uh, Colorado's application season is open. Uh, I've got my handbook right here in front of me due April 4th for the primary draw. Uh, I think I know what I'm going to do, but just a couple of things that made me think. I need to ask some questions, and one of these are are what's new, and that has to do with some tag allocation, uh, some changes over uh, what non-residents receive versus residents, and this is such a contentious thing across the West of we let too many non-residents have the tags. You need to allow residents, and it's just a battle between hunters and agencies and conservation groups saying what is the right allocation so we're not going to make everyone happy uh but what are some of those changes that have have gone into place uh over the last year sure so up until november of last year um colorado parks and wildlife have the same kind of residency allocation rules in place for over a decade Um, Previously, the regulation was that we were allocating 65% to our residents and 35% to non-residents for most of our deer and elf license hunt codes. Um, The exception were those hunt codes that took six or more resident preference points to draw using a frozen three-year average from 2007, 8, and 9. And those hunt codes that took those six or more resident preference points were referred to as our high-demand hunt codes. And for those, we were allocating 80% to residents and 20% to non-residents. So um, back in November of last year, our commission wanted to kind of update those regulations. And so the first update they made is just updating that three-year average that was frozen from seven, eight, and nine and updating that to a rolling three-year average with a one-year lag. So that means for starting this year, the 2023 draw year, we'll be using um, 2019, 2020, and 2021 draw results um, to kind of figure out what our high demand and hybrid draw hunt codes are. Um, They also um, updated those same three years for our hybrid draw, and they also added bear and pronghorn to the species that those allocation rules apply to. Okay, so that's a mouthful. Let's let's just break that down. I know you know this inside and out, but um, the three-year average used to be going off of old data for that percentage of allocation. And I've heard, I've had people reach out to me with a, look at this, look at this, this is ridiculous. We're using old, old data and now it's updated data. So 2019 to 2021 are the three-year average that they're use, you guys are using to determine those percentages, correct? Yeah, to determine the preference point. Oh, um, right, right. That's, yeah, yeah correct. sure. So whatever preference points it took, the average in those years, that's determining if it's at that point to be 80-20 or 65-35, correct? Correct. Okay, yep. cool. So that's how it was. So we just updated the years. So that's what we're going to be using for 2023. Um, And then at our commission meeting just this week, we discussed 
possible other changes, future changes to allocation. And so staff's recommendation at that meeting was a 75-25 across the board for deer, elk, bear, and pronghorn. So 75% to residents, 25% to non-residents with no kind of split between high demand and low demand hunt codes. So just 75-25 across the board. Um, and the commission did voice support for that, approve for that recommendation, but it has not been finalized in rule yet. So that will be up for final consideration in May. And the earliest that would come into play would be our 2024 draws. So for 2023, we're still going to have the 80-20 and 65-35, but just updating those three years that are used to determine the average. Okay. So the 65-35-80-20 didn't change in the last few years. It was just the three-year rolling. I know you mentioned. Okay. Good. I'm just wrapping my head around it. And then um, it just was the three year. So then now they're looking at a 75 25. What is, w- w- why? What's the, the determination on that? Well, as I said, it took over a decade to even kind of update those years because this is such a kind of political and contentious mm. topic. Sure. Um, but even after that November change, which was something, I think it spoke volumes that it took that long to even make a simple change is updating the years. Um, we still were hearing from a lot of residents through different public engagement processes that we still didn't go far enough. Um, we heard a lot of residents continue to advocate for the higher allocation, like an 80-20 or even a 90-10 like we do for sheep, goat, and moose. And so our commission asked us to continue um, working on this allocation topic. And so we launched like a public comment form on one of our um, sites, Engage CPW, and we collected um, comments for close to four weeks and received almost 3,000 comment form responses on the topic. It helped us inform that 7525 recommendation that we brought forward. That's really interesting. Now that I re- I get, understand this and, and I'm up to date now on what the commission's working on now, um, one thing we've done a similar thing here in South Dakota of capping our our over the counter. It's not over the counter, but our our unlimited archery we have for deer and antelope, and that recently has got some big changes, uh, and it's restricting non-residents quite a bit, but in the interest that non-residents can have a better experience while they're here. So by updating that average, you've got maybe a that three-year average, you now have a more accurate number. So that makes sense. And, I've, and as a hunter, yay, thumbs up. I can get on board with that. And then I know one of the arguments was 35% for non-residents. That's a lot. No other state really, that's what I hear, no other state really does that. That's a lot that you're allocating. So by getting rid of that and going a 75-25, meeting in the middle and giving, if it's those, and I was just looking at my preference points today. I got six for elk and I'm thinking for the next three to five years, what does that mean? What, which, where, where am I trying to, to shoot for? And that 25% is probably what I'd be aiming for then. And hey, that helps me out. Another 5% chance or 5% numbers of 
uh, tags for those, that that's a bonus, I guess. So maybe thumbs up for me on that one too, just to continue to work for the hunter and non-resident or resident. So that's interesting. And I wonder, it'll be fun to watch how, where all that plays out. Yeah, we, we thought it was a, a good approach from what we were hearing from residents um, because they'll get, of course, 10% more of those previous 6535 code licenses. But it also, as you mentioned, gives 5% more of those high demand licenses to non-residents. So it really was kind of a compromise approach that kind of benefits both but still caters mostly to our residents. Uh, and this is an off the uh, cuff question, but how does that compare to a couple of the other Western states around uh, for, for opportunity for non-resident? Um, I can pull up a spreadsheet that I have. I think, you know, we're probably one of the most generous as far as giving tags to non-residents. Um, yeah, I would, I would prob, I would kind of assume that just digging into Montana a little bit, just even a general tag is, I mean, I got a 54% chance as of last year's data to, to draw just a general tag, just to go do anything. I don't have an opportunity, but I already have a Colorado plan hunt or hunt planned to go do over the counter like i know i can already go so that that's not even including the um that's outside of the draw related stuff so opportunity wise yeah i know colorado for sure has um definitely some amazing opportunities for non-residents it's always been one of those targeted states for for non-residents to come and buy their counter or over the counter tag and away they go but anyway yeah uh let you pull up that spreadsheet see if see what you find so i it's this is a kind of all-encompassing but like i know for idaho they're around 10 percent for most of their species um nevada is 10 percent i think arizona is also 10 percent for most except for bear and halvelina um new mexico not taking into their count their outfitter kind of allocation but they're around 84 percent that go to their residents, um, 10% non-residents. So again, mm -hmm. most states are between like five and 10%, whereas we're, you know, aiming for 25, but right now, um, about 20 to 35%. Yeah. Has some of that, some of those comments been made by the public due to overcrowding? Has that kind of been a piece of it or is it been more the, I can't get a tag? Um, so we've definitely been hearing about overcrowding in some of the over-the-counter units. I'm sure we'll kind of talk about that a little bit later here. Um, but as far as allocation, you do just kind of hear complaints that for, from residents that Colorado's a fallback state, that if someone doesn't draw their tag in another Western state, they come to Colorado and that doesn't sit well for a lot of residents. Hmm. Um, yeah. So we're trying to find a good balance. You know, we want to we want to be a destination state for non-residents, but we also want to make sure our residents feel like they're being heard. Yeah. No, I get it. I was a resident for just nine years and a non-resident for 20 some odd years. So I, I can see a little bit of both. Uh, the locals there wouldn't call me a resident for just being there nine years, but uh, I pay my taxes there. So, but I, so I, I like to sit in the middle and just watch and listen and, and hear the ideas. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, well, that's a good transition into this over-the-counter stuff. I've got my brochure here and looking at, 
let's go with just the over-the-counter uh, archery elk. And maybe that's different for, yes, it is different for the second and third seasons. Uh, second and third seasons still have quite a bit of the over-the-counter opportunity. But once you get to archery, uh, there is, besides the front range, I mean, we've got all kinds of opportunity front range for over-the-counter archery elk, but uh, not many elk out in the prairie compared to out or up in the, on the Rhone Plateau or the Mesa or uh, wherever. But there is units, it seems like, dropping left and right every year for that archery uh, season, and we just lost or six units this over this year the the grand mesa from uh 41 to 42 521 and that whole surrounding area so that that whole thing is is now off the map for over the counter and except for private land only and obviously that's a a piece to it but we're thinking mostly most guys like me are going to show up we don't have permission to go hunt private land um so less units what do and then I guess down in the southwest we saw another unit or two I think in the last year or two that that uh, fell off the map as well for that. What are we seeing? What are the trends uh, for this over the counter? And where do you, what's the outlook? Where do we think it's going? Yeah, so we've been hearing complaints about crowding and over the counter units for a few years now, um, especially during the archery elk OTC season. So we actually started working on whether we want to limit any of these over-the-counter opportunities during our last um, big game season structure. So the 2020 through 2024 big game season structure. And we actually had made as staff some recommendations on setting some limitations, especially in the archery season um, during that time. But the commission that we had at that moment um, did not support full limitation. And so instead, what they adopted as a part of that season structure was basically allowing staff to come forward annually um, with allowing either sex and sex-specified archery elk licenses to be limited geographically to help meet biological or social management objectives. So bringing forward basically issue papers to close certain areas for those reasons. And that is kind of what spurred, you know, those two DAUs you mentioned going limited for the archery season. So yes, we had E14, the Grand Mesa DAU that went limited um, for 2023. And then the San Luis Valley E32 went limited for 2022. Um, So the problem is, of course, that when you limit certain areas, then you're pushing more pressure into the neighboring units and they're just getting even more crowded. Um, So our commission has kind of heard this from the public. They're seeing it. And they have kind of mentioned and supported staff considering some full limitations for over-the-counter archery elk as early as the 2024 hunting season. So um, for your listeners to keep an ear out for that as we go through this year, there'll be some commission presentations and more discussions about that to come. Interesting. Make us as hunters have to to choose maybe uh, what we're applying for instead of just our easy what I guess the the complaints would be a fallback state to, to uh, just 
I'll go there then instead of having to apply and plan a little bit more. Um, I just, as a hunter going to one of those OTC units this year, I just am concerned about people's preparation uh, for the unit or for the season and opening up the book once they get there, which is never a good idea, and seeing, oh, I've been hunting for 40 years and 421, and now I got to go somewhere else. Where are we going, guys? Well, now they go uh, to 21 or 30 and off they're going to a totally different unit and filling those trailheads so that is a concern that that worries me a little bit for for this year until those those things come up and the commission and decisions are made to to further restrict or or not so hmm that'll be interesting i think the other the other component is just all the other recreational pressure that those public lands have specifically in those earlier seasons from hikers, bikers, et cetera. That's also adding to the crowding issues. And then we also have biological concerns with just our elk recruitment going down in the last few years, especially in the Southern part of the state. So from a staff perspective, that's what we're trying to kind of address with talking about limitation. Yeah. Keeping the the quality of the herd up and quality of the hunt, whether that's, it's not necessarily antler size, but just quality of hunt of seeing animals and having a having a good number uh so yeah southwest i know herd this is a good transition into the next thing southwest herd has struggled i know the southeast units southeast uh, of uh glenwood springs area uh that herd has had some issues and struggles over the last year uh what are what's uh, some of the other herds outlook uh how's that roan plateau looking how's How's some of those other big herds looking for health-wise? For and let's go elk. Um, yeah, so you know, overall our elk herds are are doing well um, across the state. Um, you know, eighty-five percent of uh, those herds are um, at or above our population objectives, um, which is which is pretty high. And you have seen overall those numbers growing um, in the in the past few years. Um, you know, back in 2017, there was about 280,000 um, estimated elk in the state, and we're currently at about 308,000 estimated elk. Um, so overall, um, those populations are are doing pretty well. Oh yeah, yeah, they hit that 300 mark. That's exciting. Um, and then, and, oh, it's it's also important to note. Um, you know, we these are numbers based off 2021 data. Um, we won't have our uh, 2022 data until about April, and um, you can, uh, you know, listeners can tune into that uh, May commission meeting, and uh, there will be a presentation on um, what those herds' current numbers numbers are. Very good. What about mule deer? Mule deer is a huge thing for Colorado. I mean, it's one of the big destinations for good mule deer. How how are those herds doing? Um, I guess with that 2021 data again. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores, and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. 
That's mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. Yeah, so, you know, not quite as good, I'd say, as the elk, um, but still uh, we have 67% of, of our deer herds are at or above objective. objective. So the majority of them are, are doing well. Um, currently about 400,000 deer um, in the state. Um, so, you know, overall um, doing well, um, but, you know, there are, you know, some concerns, you know, with chronic wasting disease and things. So we have seen a reduction since our 2017 estimate of 418,000. Um, you know, with with uh, deer, you also see um, uh, a higher success rate for hunters as well um, than you do for elk. And so that does uh, play a role in um, how many licenses are allocated for hunters as well. Oh, sure. And I used to live in Silt outside a rifle area. Glenwood Springs, if those are two small towns, but, uh, that area is just getting pounded this year with snow. And I know the Grand Mesa pounded with snow. Uh, what else are you seeing for snow levels across the, the mountains? Uh, and is there a concern with some of that with, with uh, the impact on wildlife? And, uh, we just had a snowstorm here yesterday in South Dakota. It's blizzard it's like 18 degrees today and it's march 17th i'm usually out hiking around enjoying spring weather and it's cold and snowy still what are you guys seeing for weather there and i know that has to do with moisture and hunters really are always focused on moisture uh to know how how was it what the health of the herd is there yeah so the the northwest um region of the state um is having a um a lot of snow some pretty cold winter um up there um, you know, all the snow is going to be um, great for, um, you know, moisture as that snow melts uh, for the area. Um, but it has been um, uh, something that our biologists in the area are um, keeping an eye on uh, as far as the, the elk herds up in that area. Um, they're getting a lot of snowpack and it's uh, hard for the elk to get down to some of that um, natural food there. And so we have seen um, some increases in um, vehicle collisions as those animals go closer to roads uh, where it's easier to get down to some of that food using the roads for um, for pathways because uh, they're more clear than, than some of the um, snowy areas to travel to. And uh, we have done some uh, uh, baiting operations up in there um, in the Northwest to try to limit some of the game damage um, uh, conflicts up there with cattle. And so, um, 
you know, we have had to, you know, it's more of a baiting thing to draw them away from roads and away from um, private properties more than a necessary feeding uh, operation. Um, so, you know, it is something, especially up in the Northwest that, uh, you know, and we do see changes and fluctuations year over year. Overall, you know, the populations, the elk are gonna, gonna survive, um, but it is, uh, you know, something that our biologists have been um, focused on this year. Sure. How about antelope? Because I know antelope are kind of weenies when it comes to tough winters and have have to really battle through. Are they are seeing any abundance of winter kill with those with those guys? So we have had um, quite a few vehicle collisions with pronghorn uh, up in that northwest um, because of, like I mentioned before, um, them going to um the roadways where it's clear and more easy to get down to some food um also you know the, the salt that's spread on the roads can attract them a little bit as well so we have seen some relatively large vehicle collisions um, where 30 plus pronghorn have been um, taken out um, by vehicles in those areas when they come down to feed near the roads hmm. well uh next Area is just I wanted to ask about moose. Moose has always been on top of my list of uh, a dream hunt of mine, and and since I started in Colorado, I'm just just throwing all my eggs in, in that basket. And someday, hopefully, uh, I draw that. Getting harder and harder as a non-resident. Uh, now that I'm a non-resident, but I'm hopeful. I'm younger, young-ish, uh, that I've got a lot of years left for that. Um, but, uh, there's, um, oh, where's I getting with that? Uh, a concern about, I've always thought, uh, about the, the wolves and concern on growing moose population. Colorado has had a really booming moose population. And when you look back to, uh, 2005, I'm going to throw out that number, that date, 2005 or some of the first dates on some good solid moose population data that is published on your site and i used to have kids learn to graph with that data that was their their uh, science practice to learn how to do some proper graphing and we, we just see that number grow and grow and grow and it was just exciting and you can see the in the harvest data the antler size bigger and bigger every year and and you guys are opening more units uh, every year. So just having a really good opportunity there is, is exciting, uh, to maybe be lucky enough one day. I think my odds are better there than sheep, hundred percent better than sheep. Um, and I've already harvested a, a mountain goat in Colorado, which was, it was a hunt of a lifetime and I want to do it again. Uh, and I think I will be able to, but moose is, is a tough one. So what, what are you guys seeing with, with the moose, uh, population growing? And I know that wolf population is, is in its infancy yet uh we're not getting into the whether they should be there or not be there don't care about that right now um but just what are you seeing and what are the biologists concerns about um their population as we see uh predatory changes yeah so um as you said the moose populations in colorado are doing very well um i pulled up those 2005 numbers about 1500 back in 2005 and we currently have an estimated 3,500 um, moose across the state. And so we are, um, you know, in, increases in moose licenses um, 
have been occurring the past few years. Um, we're currently issuing about 600 um, moose licenses across the state. And so those opportunities are increasing. And we are seeing those moose um, spread out and pioneer into new habitats, um, which is allowing us to add additional units uh, for people to hunt as well. And, um, you know, as, as far as the opportunities there, um, you know, really, uh, when everyone tries to go for those, uh, those big bull moose, um, so if you look at the application numbers for, for bulls, um, that's where everyone tries to go. Um, mm -hmm. When you look at cows, um, your opportunities um, increase uh, dramatically um, if you're mostly going out for meat and less, less so going for the trophy. And um, you see the same thing with uh, goat and sheep as well. Um, and so the more people that are applying for those, you know, male licenses, you know, the harder it's going to be for, for folks to draw. Um, but those opportunities have been increasing um, in recent years. And, um, you know, as far as uh, wolves being reintroduced into Colorado, um, you know, uh, wolves uh, do pr uh, prefer um, to go after elk. We have much larger elk populations in Colorado for them um, to prey on. And so, um, you know, and it's really too early to tell um, uh, how that's going to affect our population numbers in the state. It's just really hard to predict those future predator-prey dynamics. Um, but it is a fact, it is uh, going to be a factor going forward um, when we are setting license numbers. Um, predation has always been a factor and, um, you know, uh, wolf predation is going to be a factor as well. Yeah. And, and that's what I was, I was kind of thinking that those wolves ought to, they might have attacked or ta not attacked, have uh, focused on that moose. Obviously elk are going to be a lot more numerous. You can see that in their numbers. Uh, but moose generally want to stay a little higher in that deeper snow and it would be a little bit more susceptible to predation versus those elk, which would generally want to go lower get out of typically that that d deep snow and i know those big bulls stay high and they'll stay in that deep snow stuff and be just as susceptible but um that's inter that's interesting for me to hear that they're they're still really really wanting to target those those elk for sure um but yeah any other thoughts on that the yeah you know it's just it's just too early to tell and you know it is possible that um select um uh, wolf packs uh, focus on a specific food source and so that is something that we'll have to keep an eye on um, as we move forward in developing herd management plans and wolf management plans danielle quick question what are my better odds doing doing the season choice stuff or just going all in with a uh archery tag is it still, I mean, that season choice thing is so awesome. I love, I, I really like that idea because everybody wants to, you hear about archery moose being one of those amazing hunts, just a giant animal, super close. Uh, that's exciting to me. I would love to go chase one with a bow and, but I also don't want it to be impossible for me to, to draw that tag. That's that's hard for me. I haven't don't have the, <laughs> okay, the sure. draw like things pulled up to give you a good recommendation. But I think um, like looking at some of these newer units that Joey was mentioning that we've been opening up, um, I think those don't tend to get as much interest in applicants. Um, also, I not just for moose, but in general, sometimes those ranching for wildlife properties 
are also easier um, to draw, especially for antlerless tags. I think Joey's spot on, like if you really just want to go moose hunting in general, um, looking at some of those cow moose licenses, it's really the way to go. Is there a way to tell um, if you're just applying for something for no reason? And what I mean by that is I'm looking at, I read number six on the non-resident license allocations and it says units with low numbers of available license, which is moose goat and sheep may not have any remaining for non-residents after residence license are drawn. So I pick a unit and there's, let's just say five moose tags. I don't even know if that's a lot, a little, I don't know. Um, let's just say there's five there and it, it still would be an 80, 20 split, or maybe in the future, 75, 25 split is it maybe saying instead in those units where there's one or two tags that those non-residents just absolutely aren't going to be drawn that thing most likely. Or when you got five to 10, you still probably are going to have that, or you still are going to have that 20% for non-residents. Does that question so, make sense? Yeah. For like sheep, goat, and moose, we have the, a 90, 10 split. Oh, right. And... Right. Sorry. 90, 10. I knew that. So it gets a little tricky then when you start, you know, subtracting out um, all the different preferences and then put the allocation rules in. And then even for like our hybrid draws, when we only have like a quota of five in a particular unit, there isn't always going to be a general non-resident tag available. And so I believe we do um, notate those in our brochures um, so that applicants are aware that there might not be a non-resident allocation um, for a particular hunt code after we do the landowner preference, after we do the youth preference, et cetera. And just looking at those numbers, it'd probably be anything lower with 10 tags. If there's 10 tags, then you can easily get that 10% out of there. Um, But if there's lower than 10, I mean, you don't really have one in 10 going to a non-resident. I don't know. I'm just looking at it with a, my math mind is not strong, but. (laughs) No, you're exactly right. Okay. So that's why we try to try to make people aware of that. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know because I don't want to just be applying for something for the next 20 years and be like, well, there hasn't been a non-resident tag there for 20 years. You're wasting, (laughs) wasting uh, where I could go apply for something else and have a have a better chance. So all those, all those little tricks and the understand, it's not even tricks. It's just understanding the process, understanding the application thing. I, I thrive. I love that stuff. So, and I know a lot of my listeners do as well. They, they like diving into this and, uh, one of my listeners, but more so one of my good, good friends is, a is a science teacher or was a science teacher, a stats teacher. And man, he uses his, I'm pretty sure he's using his straight calculus to figure this out. Cause he, He's always doing well in the draw. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, I would, I would uh, push your listeners to check out the hunting statistics on our website and um, check out the draw recap reports and population estimates. And you can really dig in and maximize uh, your chances of drawing a license um, by digging into those numbers and looking at, you know, how many licenses did we issue last year and um, how many people applied. And you can really leverage um, any points you have or try to find hunts that um, don't require any points. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thanks, Julie. I was, was going to mention those too. It, it really, those reports break down everything from how many landowners drew, how many youth drew, um, non-residents versus residents. So, and at what point level. So they are very detailed reports that you can get a lot of good info out of. Yep. I, I study those pretty hard. And funny you mentioned this, just had an interview yesterday with Howell for Wildlife and me and him chatted for a while exactly on this, that you can create, you can find those opportunities. They're there. If you study that, you, you figure it out, you can have these opportunities. If you keep saying, I haven't drawn a tag for 10 years, well, then you're applying for the wrong thing and you haven't really figured it out and spent the time to, to learn it. So, um, okay, let's move on. Uh, it's also coming up on, well, in Colorado, not so much because there is a shed season of May 1st, west of I-25. Uh, but here in South Dakota, there's a lot of guys, there is no season and, and uh, folks are shed hunting already for our deer and elk here shortly. But uh, shed hunting has, has definitely had some changes over the last uh, few years across the west. We're seeing some regulations go into place. Uh, that limit to a May 1st or even a closure completely. And uh, Colorado is that one of those that has a May 1st start time. And it's it's very contentious. I've been out in Unit 10 and some of those other trophy units out doing a little shed hunting on opening day, and I don't know if I'll go back. <laughs> it was kind of crazy. It was not the nice spring hike I enjoyed. There was a lot of illegal activity. There was a lot of uh, things I saw where guys were going to pick up their stashes and it was not fun. Um, I just camped and woke up and was like, all right, let's go for our hike. But there was people showing up like it was opening day of, of third season. It was kind of, kind of crazy. Uh, what are you guys seeing for some of those impacts on wildlife and how is this, this creating a season protected wintering wildlife? Um, so yeah, just for some, you know, context, um, so we implemented that, um, shed hunting, uh, restrictions back in 2018 and that applies, um, west of I-25 in Colorado on public land. Um, so you're still allowed to shed hunt on private land or on lands that are east of I-25 and, uh, that closure is from January 1st to April 30th. And uh, the goal of that closure was to reduce disturb uh, winter disturbances to wildlife, um, primarily elk, um, during the important winter months. Um, and so um, our biologists and officers have seen substantial reductions in those disturbances um, in big game from shed hunters um, since we have implement implemented that closure. And, um, you know, uh, if you just look at our elk population numbers um, since that was implemented, um, you will see um, an increase in our elk herds um, since that was uh, implemented. Now, you know, that's a, a lot of factors going into that increase, um, but our, our biologists and officers um, have reported substantial reductions in those disturbances. Hmm. The, the argument is always a just keeping shed hunters out and forgetting about the other recreation recreators. Yeah. What, what has been in discussion or, or what's been, how does, how does CPW handle the, yeah. that argument? Yeah. So, you know, when, you know, people are shed hunting during those winter months, um, 
you know, you pretty much go out to where those elk or deer are and, you know, basically run them off of, of their bedding grounds. Um, and, you know, during the winter months, it's, you know, they're, you know, we need to conserve as much energy as possible. There's not as much food. Um, and so, you know, for the most part, they're trying to um, stay put, conserve energy, and um, shed hunting specifically um, stresses those animals more than other forms of recreation. Um, you know, you still get snowmobiles out there and other other forms of recreation that way, um, but they're not generally not going to where those animals are and pushing them off of those wintering grounds. And so that's where the focus um, on shed hunting um, came into play because just as an in inherent part of that recreational activity, um, you're going to where those animals are and uh, pushing them, stressing them out, uh, you know, burning important calories that um, they'd otherwise be using to um, help uh, grow babies uh, in the cow's belly during those months. Right. And it's a, that's a hard thing for, for me. Um, one of my favorite times of the year is March. Uh, I mean, I, I love the hunting season, but I love March and April. We get that, those green shoots start to come up on a normal year. I'm looking at drifts of really frozen snow outside right now, blowing snow. So a little odd year, but springtime where we're, we got, we've had cabin fever a little bit it's one of my favorite times to get out and to go explore. And, uh, I am, I, I live right in the middle of national forest here in South Dakota, but I don't have, uh, I, and I, or I, there is a couple of established trails around, but I've never stepped foot on them. I hate established trails. I, I won't walk on them. <laughs> it's because I like to go find the, the wild, the, the things that are, that are not, uh, that not everybody else has seen. I know that there was 10 people walking on this trail earlier today, so it just doesn't, it's not how I connect with nature. Uh, so it's just a hard thing, um, for me as a, that's my recreational activity that I love just as much as the snowmobilers and the hikers. Uh, but yet I was a science teacher and I, in my current position right now, uh, I understand generally, uh, wildlife populations and the, the concern and I want to uh, um, make sure that they're there so I can go enjoy them during the season or out of the season so it's always a I don't know how to <laughs> how to argue either side of yeah there should be one or no there shouldn't want be one so um, if you got any advice on how to how to have that battle in my head <laughs> of support or not support uh, let me know because it's a tricky one. Yeah. And, you know, completely understand, you know, that is, um, a fun, uh, recreational activity, a good time, uh, to get out there, but you know, the, the wildlife resource, um, is valuable as well. And trying to protect and conserve that, um, wildlife resources is a, um, you know, major goal of Colorado parks and wildlife to make sure that, um, that resource is here for future generations to enjoy as well. And so there has to, um, be that balance and maybe a bit of um, sacrifice um, for some recreational activities to make sure that that resource is still here. 
Right. And the, uh, I, I don't know if you pay attention to that, but the, uh, the memes and stories of the U- Utah shed hunters not getting their YouTube con- content is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> not being able to get their content. Uh, I could care less really what I put on YouTube or <laughs> YouTube and Instagram. I don't really care. I just like having a podcast to share information and, and <laughs> help other outdoorsmen out. Um, but yeah, that's a, it's a, a touchy subject and, and, uh, um, just discussing it, I'm sure we'll get a few people's blood boiling and, but, uh, it is what it is. And, and, uh, if we want that resource to be there and I, I understand using the word sacrifice there probably is, is the correct word, a sacrifice, but, um, I will still throw my, my, uh, one-year-old on my back at some point and, and, uh, we'll get out during that. Well, here anytime, but and I head to Colorado. Their birthdays are both April 30th and March 16th. So I told them both the other day, say, hey, birthday parties are going to happen in Colorado on May 1st, I think, in the future just to go enjoy some some spring hiking. So, uh, And that, that almost wraps up my uh, – or does wrap up my questions for you guys. Do you have any other thoughts and, and things, uh, resources for listeners, uh, ways to follow um, – I just shared a CPW resource yesterday with a with a coworker on uh, some really cool um, the fishing app that you had. Uh, you got to have a lot of really good resources on on various things. So, any any thoughts on that? I think my uh, you kind of mentioned it in the beginning, but uh, you know, big game applications are being accepted right now. Um, I always encourage people to try to get those applications in as soon as possible, as early as possible. Um, the deadline is April 4th, um, but if you wait until April 4th, um, our staff gets increasingly busy during that month of April. It becomes um, harder and harder for us to um, help you in the best ways possible. So, um, you know, get started early, get those applications in as soon as possible. That way, if you do have any um, questions or issues, um, our staff will be better equipped to help you through that process. Well, awesome. I guess last thing, uh, Daniel and Joey, what, uh, what's your favorite, what's your, what's your niche? What's, what gets you going? This is kind of a backwards thing to do. I do normally do it in an interview or an introduction, but are you, are you hunters, fishermen, campers? What's, what are you looking forward to, uh, either this spring or fall? You want to go, Daniel? So I go ahead, Joey. <laughs> um, so uh, I grew up mostly uh, camping and fishing. So it was a big, uh, big into fishing. Was always fishing, and um, every time we'd go camping, I would be gone all day long, um, running around the lake trying to find a good spot to fish. Um, I'm getting more and more into hunting. You know, I spent five years helping uh, people apply for the draw and understand our hunting regulations, and uh, got my first year this past year. Um, which was a great experience, uh, seven and a half mile hike, uh, um, through the mountains at about five degrees. So, um, (laughs) overall, just a great experience. I really enjoyed it and, uh, just love everything that Colorado has to offer. It couldn't, couldn't help, but spark a little interest seeing all these hunters apply for stuff. So that's really, really, really awesome. Congratulations on that. I'm sounds like I can hear it in your voice that that was a rewarding experience and you enjoyed it. So, Danielle? So, I'm also a lifelong angler and grew up with a dad and a grandpa who were hunters. So, I was kind of always around hunting and I've been out hunting a few times, but I wouldn't label myself as a hunter. 
Um, and then I have two kind of younger kids and we love exploring the outdoors and hiking and visiting all of our state parks. I haven't taken them tent camping yet, but I'm looking forward to that hopefully here soon. Well, awesome. Well, thank you again for putting this interview together and scheduling and, and doing some research to look up my answers. I love Colorado. I, I, I've got a, got a, I love South Dakota. I love being back here. Um, I don't think I'll be moving back to Colorado at any point, but I will be visiting Colorado a lot (laughs) every, every year, every other year to, to do some hunting. So I, I look forward to many, many more years of, uh, recreating in, in Colorado. It's a great state and enjoy watching what you guys do in CPW. So thanks for, thanks for being that voice and, uh, getting the info out to people. Um, this will go out to lots and lots of Coloradans as well as Colorado hunters. Thanks so much, Clint. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys. And I'll let you, let you get back to your day and just stick your, stick around here for just a sec as after I hit stop on the record button so thanks again to the land but it ain't my ground this is god's country